I am so honored to have Anne Benninghoff back again, an expert and author, a consultant. I just love the energy that Anne exudes in her books, but also in her webinars and in her my conversations in the past. So you came back, you came to us before talking about co-teaching and how to make it work. And I left that conversation, I was like, wow, she's so amazing. And then at the end of the conversation, you talked about your upcoming book that's gonna be released. And I said, listen, please come back. We'd love to have you because you were just a wealth of information. And the way you present it is just so clear and practical. And so you take the research from the ivory tower and you make it real for teachers. So, and it's an honor to be back in the presence of a master. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. I think that it's so important to take that research and make it practical. You know, we all want to use research-based strategies, but it's the translation of that into something that we can do that's simple and time effective <clears throat> and that kids will engage with and like. Right. I, I was talking to uh to the programmers of Write Reader, it's a program online, and they said we stripped everything away to make it. We first thought about teachers. If it wasn't easy for teachers to use, they're not going to teach it to their kids. And I think it's a very similar your philosophy, your approach to your writing your books and your your work. If it's not practical, if it's not implementable, I don't know if that's a word. Uh, <laughs> then teachers are not going to use it and therefore it's not going to work with kids. So you make it right. just so practical. Well, I, I learned that kind of the hard way. Um, there was a point in my uh, career, I'm in my 40th year now, and there was a point where I took a couple of years away from teaching students and went to teaching college. And I realized very quickly that I was offering suggestions to um, teachers that were in my courses or places I was consulting that were not very practical. So you, you do get that removal experience happens very quickly. Um, and so that's actually what threw me back into making sure that I was always teaching students. And so for years, I've been teaching part-time while I've been consulting with districts around the world because it keeps me practical. And so I can try something and I think, oh, this is a great idea. Let me try this. And then, you know, my co-teachers and I would be like, oh, forget it. That, that was a great idea, but it was way too much work. It's not, you know, it's not realistic. So, um, so that's why I always try to keep my foot into a classroom. I really appreciate that. The last time you talked about when you came on to the podcast, talk about co-teaching, you said, oh yeah, I still co-teach and co-plan. I'm like, you have a full-time consulting schedule. How do you uh, teach? Like you still teach and yet you do. And that makes it really practical. That's why your advice is so helpful to teachers because you still have a foot in the class. You're still sitting beside teachers and you're still sitting beside students and helping them. Yeah. Well, and isn't that what most people go into teaching because they love working with kids. So really it feeds my soul to be able to keep teaching students. It's not just about the outcome for the kids, you know, yes. obviously that too, but, but it does make my days, you know, those are the best days of the month when I'm working with students. Right. I always say that teaching is, makes me ton 2.0. Ah, yeah. I'm the best version of myself, the kindest, the most patient when I'm with students. When I'm with adults, it's a little different. <laughs> 
kids bring the best out of me. It seems good. like the teachers say that as well. Yes, that's good. <laughs> so speaking about kids, you have a book called Spe uh, Specially Designed Instruction, Increasing Success for Students with Disabilities. So I'd love for you to talk about um, where you're an expert in the field. You're often cited in work uh, in the field. Can you tell us what was the purpose of or the seed of this book? Well, the term specially designed instruction in the United States is a legal term. So it has foundation in special education law and has been in the law since the 1970s. Um, in the old days, we tended to pull students with disabilities into separate classrooms. And then we might provide them with a separate curriculum, a very different approach to whatever the instruction was. And that probably met the criteria of the federal regulations for specially designed instruction. But once we started including students and trying to give them access to the general ed curriculum and participate in the same things that were happening in the general ed classroom, we began to struggle, I think, as special educators and general educators to figure out how do we do this? It's required by law that we provide specially designed instruction, but what does that mean? And there was a lot of confusion. And I think uh, uh, what happened is that a lot of special educators became underutilized. Yes. They were beginning to um, take on more of the role of a general educator rather than a special educator. So we started to lose the special in special education um, because we were trying to include. So with the best purposes in mind, we just weren't quite sure how to figure it all out. And because I've been co-teaching for so many years and as a part of that, I began to recognize that I had a process that worked for me as a teacher, as a specialist, to make sure I was providing that specially designed instruction. And I wanted to share that with other people. So you talked about um, underutilization. What does that look like for special ed teachers who are now in the inclusion classes, but then they're underutilized? Well, what we're finding is that sometimes they act like a general ed teacher. And this isn't saying anything bad about general ed teachers. They are amazing individuals. And if you think about it, general ed practices work for 85 or 90% of the population. And it's amazing that anything works for 90% of the population, I think. And so those practices are awesome. But for about 10 to 15% of the population, depending upon whose numbers you use, um, those practices don't work as well because those children have disabilities that interfere with their ability to access it in the traditional way. And so for those students, we're supposed to be doing something different. Um, the law, the, the definition of specially designed instruction is to adapt content, methodology, or delivery of instruction. It's that simple, adapt content, methodology, or delivery of instruction. And instead of adapting, some special ed teachers were taking on the role of a general ed teacher. But, but we have that general ed curriculum expert. So we need the special ed expert now, that expertise in how do you adapt for these students. Then the second thing that I think became confusing is that special ed teachers were being asked to provide the accommodations and the accommodations started to replace specially designed instruction. 
So they're not the same thing. Uh, accommodations are things that can be offered to all children. Um, they are required. Certain accommodations might be required for students with disabilities and with IEPs, but specially designed instruction is not accommodation. And so teachers were getting confused about those two things. And so they ended up doing just the accommodations sometimes rather than the specially designed instruction. Would can you I? I think I was just going to say, can I give you an example? And were you just going to ask, would you give an example? <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> so, um, so let's think about graphic organizers. You've used them with students, right? Yes. Right. Every teacher in the world probably has used graphic organizers with students at some point. Um, a lot of times on a student's individual education plan, IEP, here in the States, it will say a list of accommodations and one of them will be graphic organizers. And so sometimes when I'm talking with special ed teachers, they'll say, yeah, I'm providing specially designed instruction. I'm giving him a graphic organizer, but that's an accommodation. So, so let's look at adapting content methodology or delivery and the phrase specially designed instruction, that third word is really important, instruction. So a graphic organizer is more of a tool. It's not really instruction, yeah. right? It's not special instruction either because it's what general ed teachers do. So it's not been adapted. So I, I'm gonna take you back for a minute and just let's look at those three words, specially. So it's supposed to be something special, something that general ed teachers aren't typically doing. Because if what the general ed teacher is doing, then the student wouldn't have a need, right? If it's working, it, the student wouldn't have a need. Um, designed means it's intentional and it's, it's based on the IEP goals for the student, those individual goals, what are we trying to accomplish? But then that third word is that it's instruction. We're not just giving them something, we're teaching them. Um, so let's go back to that graphic organizer example. Um, I could, instead of just giving the student a graphic organizer, I could take that student, if they have like an IEP goal around um, organization, they have an IEP goal around comprehension or study skills, right? Lots of different IEP goals could fit in here. And I could teach them how to create their own graphic organizers. I could sit down with them and say, Hmm. Well, we use lots of different shapes. Why might you use a circle? Might, why might you use a square? Sometimes we use dotted lines. Sometimes we use solid lines or arrows. Why do you think you might do this or that? What are your preferences? Um, sometimes we add illustrations and, and kind of sketch noting. And when might you do that? And so now I'm teaching them a skill that they're going to be able to take into any class anywhere they go, rather than just giving them something. Right. So that would be an example of SDI, specially designed instruction, because it's going beyond what the general ed classroom teacher typically does. So it's special, it's intentional because it's related to the IEP goal. So there's a design element there. And then I'm actually teaching them a skill that can become generalizable and increase their independence. I never really thought about that, the concept of um, tool versus instruction, right? So, or accommodation versus especially uh, design instruction. Mm -hmm. I think in, because this, the audience that is listening right now are their language specialists, right? And so we always lean towards uh, 
supporting making content comprehensible and so sometimes we might lean towards that of just not really accommodating kids which is uh, scaffolding and differentiating instruction but you, mm -hmm. but for but for students with special needs they really do need this uh, specially designed instruction and you talked about tools and that's the the instruction part when we give them the instruction they become independent Yes. And when they become independent, they become more competent. And then they, when they go to other classes, these skills transfer. So you're talking about like the, the metacognitive mm -hmm. skills of recognizing I have, a, I have a problem or I'm experiencing a learning problem. What can I do to get over that? Or what can I do to go through that process? And right. Ms. Benninghoff just taught me, oh, I can use a graphic organizer. I can use certain kinds of arrows. I can use bullets and boxes. And so right. that I could do that in my own class. So, right. so then it's not just a tool, it's it's the learning how to transfer the tool into your own practice as a student. Correct. And um, the term specially designed instruction only applies to students in the US to students with IEPs yes. because it's it's really the definition of special education. However, students that don't have IEPs, if we're in an inclusive classroom and the co-teacher and I decide, hey, there are other kids that could really benefit from this instruction. They can receive what our law calls incidental benefit by being part of that group instruction. So yes, you may have some students that are English language learners and really they maybe don't, um, they're not required to have that instruction and you, you might support them enough by giving them a graphic organizer, but you might also say, hey, if they learned this skill, that would be great for them too. So what they're receiving then is incidental benefit while the student with the IEP goal is receiving specially designed instruction. Right. How do we make sure that that doesn't happen, that we, that specialists don't just move towards accommodating the part where they think about specially designed instruction? Well, I think it's it, some of it just starts from your own desire to make sure students make adequate progress. Right. Um, we've had occasionally we see situations where special ed teachers might say the student isn't doing well in the general ed setting. They need to be pulled out. Well, let's look at what you're actually providing in that general ed setting before we pull out. And are we providing accommodations only or are we providing specially designed instruction? Right. And so there's that motivation, I think, that most teachers have to give students what they really need to be able to make that progress. And when they see that happening, like, wow, that lesson was fantastic. The student really understands it. Our formative assessment shows us that um, because, you know, we taught it differently, uh, then they're motivated. Plus, I do think that most special ed teachers want to teach. We, <laughs> we, we want to teach. That's why we went into this. And, and we're frustrated when we're, when we feel like we're in a situation where we're being asked to act more like a tutor or an aide, or, you know, um, not that those roles are, are bad, but they're not what I was trained for. I have more to offer right. than that. And so I think most special ed teachers are highly motivated to do something different they just aren't quite sure how to do that, what that looks like. And that's why I finally decided, okay, I need to start sharing my process, my steps for going through that so that other teachers might feel more comfortable with that process. We're going to be going to those steps in a minute, but I just want to say, because your whole book 
for like four chapters is about the different steps of how of you going through yeah. the process. So yeah. um, I do want to say that I want to thank you because um, you're speaking to language specialists from the perspective of a special education teacher. And we feel the exact same way. Mm. Sometimes we're treated like tutors. Sometimes we're treated like aides. We are, again, which is not bad. However, we're underutilized. Mm-hmm. We have these skills. We have these trainings. We have this uh, special awareness. There's, we have this specific skill set. And we're not fully utilized when we're in the corner stapling. Right, right. And your students need you to be fully utilized. So some of that at times just comes back to advocacy. Um, I always tell the teachers I'm, I'm, you know, coaching and working with, you need to think of yourself as an expert. And so many teachers are like, oh, I'm not an expert. (laughs) Yes, you are. You have expertise. And you have to present that way so that you're Gen ed colleague realizes you have something to offer and that you are confident enough. Um, I always also suggest that, you know, the first time or two you go into a classroom or sit to plan, co-plan with someone, you have to bring your A game. (laughs) You have to have your best strategy and really be ready to sell yourself. And it's unfortunate that we feel like we have to, but there are times when we have to. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, I'll start off slow. And as we get to know each other, I'll do more. And I think that's a problem because it sets up um, a disparity between the two of you and uh, you can get into kind of a rut. It sets this norm that, oh, that's how we're going to work together. Okay, I'm going to do whatever you suggest I do rather than going in with that sense of, hey, we're in this together. Here are my ideas. What are your ideas? You know, (laughs) right from the beginning. It starts, it creates a, a hierarchy. The kids sense it in the way we when we co-teach because it's already seen the way we co-plan. Yes, that's right. And um, it's I think there are several different specialist roles that experience that, which is why in my co-teaching that works book, I did chapters on the different specialties because occupational therapists can experience that. EL development people can work, you know, have that issue. Um, literacy specialists, you know, there's a variety of areas where that can be a problem. So now in, in your realm, you use a slightly different phrase, specially designed academic um, uh, instruction in English, SIDAI, right? Yes. It's very similar, um, except that the legal background is a bit different than specially designed instruction, right? We have certain laws that give us a bit more guidance about what that looks like and how that has to be related to IEP goals and so forth. But the idea is very similar. You just taught me something I didn't know. I, I heard of SADAI several times. So I'm like, oh, wow. Can you say that again? Yeah. Designed. Yeah, it's S-D-A-I-E. So specially designed academic instruction in English. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, if you think about those first two words, specially designed, it's the same kind of focus. Right. Specially designed academic instruction in English. It's just got that focus on helping the English language learner versus for us, it can be broader, right? We could be working on all kinds of behaviors and study skills and, and literacy math issues, you know, a little bit broader. Would you take us now into the steps? This You have seven steps for a specifically designed instruction. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, for me, the very first step in any kind of instructional design is to be clear about what the learning target is. Um, And if I'm teaching all by myself, you know, that's a little bit easier, but 
uh, when we are collaborating with general ed teachers, we need to be clear so that we both have the same goal, end goal. Um, I believe that learning targets should be that daily target. What do we want to accomplish by the end of this lesson? And so the first step is just being really clear about that so that I know how to do something special. If it's too broad, if it's for a whole week or two week unit, I don't know what to do today that's going to help them get there. So that's an easy first step. That's very similar to a language specialists. We always start with the content and the language objective. Absolutely. Right. Now, the second step, again, all of this, I think, applies. The second step is um, to just kind of try to pinpoint what are going to be the difficult moments in the lesson. Where are students going to struggle? And I, again, I can do that on my own. But if I'm having a conversation with a general ed teacher, they often have a different perspective on it because they've taught it more regularly, more frequently, maybe than I have. Um, so in that step two, they're thinking about difficult moments from their background in the curriculum, like what's hard about the curriculum piece, whereas I've got that perspective, what makes this difficult for a student with a disability, right? So they might be thinking, well, this curriculum piece has some underlying foundational elements that they might be missing. And I might think, yes, that's true. But they there's also there's going to be a lot of visual perception required here, or there's going to be a lot of memory required here that they might be weak in, right? So we bring those two perspectives together in step two. Ugh, I have so much to learn from uh, this special ed teachers because because you, you're talking about like visual perception. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's something that, that you're thinking about. And I really never thought about that. I only think about the language side of it. Right? Yeah. So, well, that's what's so wonderful about teaming, right? Is that you get those ideas from each other and you learn from each other. Right. What's step three? Step three is specific in, in my role to IEP goals, the individual education plan. What are the IEP goals that I'm going to be addressing during this lesson? So for you, there may be, you know, this broader learning target and then a specific student's goal, right? That might be very individualized. And of course you do also have some students that are English language learners that also have disabilities, but I have a legal mandate as a special educator to be working on IEP goals on a constant basis. That's my primary job is to address IEP goals. And so I need to be aware of the IEP goals, have them readily available, right? I can't go hunting through, you know, folder and folder of information, but having them readily available. So we use something called goals at a glance, mm. where we just kind of capture the essence of the goals that are related to that course or that period or classroom all on one page uh, for all of the students that might be in that class. So we can quickly glance at it and say, well, in this lesson, we could work on that goal, that goal, and that goal. Because again, that's my job. So I shouldn't be co-teaching without also working on IEP goals um, every day. Uh, so I always encourage administrators and teachers to ask the question each day, uh, what IEP goal were you working on today? Right. And this is why we, Going back to the beginning of the conversation you talked about, we can't just do accommodations. We have to think about each student who is uh, identified as a special needs student. There are specific goals that we want them to meet. And we have to, accommodations are not enough. It has to be very specific. So instead of thinking like a flashlight, we want to be like a laser. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and 
really, you can't, um, you wouldn't say something is specially designed instruction if you can't relate it to an IEP goal. So that they're always linked. And that's, whereas accommodations aren't, you could do all kinds of accommodations that aren't necessarily related to an IEP goal. Right. They're just helpful, which is great, but this is always gonna be linked to an IEP goal. Right. For the language specialists that are listening, if our version of IEP would be the WIDA can do standards or the ELPA 21 mm -hmm. standards, it's, it's whatever language standards that you have, that's the same thing. Yes, we wanna accommodate uh, we want to create accommodations for all kids to learn academic language because academic language is another language. But we, uh, I guess Anne, what Anne is saying, please remember the specific goal of each student if you have that in your structure. So thank yes. you for that. Yes, thanks. So these first three steps are what I think of as the information gathering phase of the process of my seven, right? If you, What's the target? What are the difficult moments? What are the IEP goals? That's all information gathering. And then the next seven steps are really about transforming the lesson, adapting the lesson, making it special, um, figuring out how to make it instructional. So step four, you actually kind of gave me a, a great lead in a little while ago, but I, I couldn't jump on it fast enough. And that is to identify the metacognitive process that a successful learner uses. So this is this step four has been a game changer for me personally. Once I realized that that's what I was doing, <laughs> I used my metacognition to say, well, how are you doing this? And what I do is I stop and kind of think, what would a successful learner do in order to accomplish that learning target? So I try to get in my own head and think, how do I process that? Um, and it's not always really obvious. You have to kind of dig for it. <clears throat> and then if what I come up with is different than how it's being taught, I now have a direction to head in adapting it, right? Because I'm supposed to be doing something different than the typical approach. If my way of thinking is exactly how it's being taught in the general ed curriculum, then I go and I ask other people, how would you do this? How would you do this? How would you do this? So that I can get inside their heads and inevitably we find um, a variation on metacognition, right? We all kind of think things through a little bit differently. Some come at it backwards or sideways or you know, lots of different approaches. <clears throat> and then that gives us a bit of a taste for like, okay, where do we go next here? What can I do with this? Um, can I give you an example? Please. All right. So um, several years ago, I had a, a algebra colleague that I was co-teaching with, and we were finding that students had some memory issues in the classroom. I had some students that had IEP goals about memory um, and study skills. And so I knew I needed to address that pretty directly and kind of in, intentionally address it. Um, and my colleague said, well, what if we give them a mnemonic, right? To help them remember this. And I thought, well, that's great. But giving a mnemonic isn't the same as instructing kids as fully. Like it doesn't necessarily help them learn the study skills piece, right? Because I've given it to them. So depending, I, I, I kind of feel like that's a little bit more like an accommodation. I'm giving them the mnemonic. <clears throat> So I said, well, what if instead we taught them how to create mnemonics, right? Now they're developing that uh, independent skill that they can transfer to other places. And so he said, great, you figure it out. 
So then, all right. So now we're looking at step four and I had to, in my head think, well, what is the metacognitive process? How do you create a mnemonic? What steps do you go through? Right. And I had to try to figure out, well, what would I do if I was trying to create a mnemonic and make that more concrete, right? Step one, you you need to identify what you want to remember. Um, Step two, Mm, now I need to shorten that to little words or phrases because there's way too much that I need to remember, right? Step three, hmm, can I rearrange it into some kind of a memorable acronym or, right? So I had to identify the metacognitive process and then that opened up like, oh, we could teach this. Oh, and let me tell you, I, I think this is like teaching therapy for me because <laughs> I, I think, a language specialist, uh, and me in particular, we just want to help kids thrive and survive in content classes in the mainstream. And so we're rushing to give them strategies, but we I don't have the time, or I think I don't have the time, to stop and share with them why we do this, how we can do this. And so mm-hmm. after your conversation several months ago, um, I started just ending my classes saying, this is what we did today. What? How can you use this in the future? Or, right. This is what we did today. What, what's the benefit of doing this? We annotated today, uh, we annotated an article today. What's the benefit of annotating an article in the future? Why do we do that? And so, kids, um, that has been just, I, I owe you a debt of gratitude oh. for doing that. So, uh, thank you. And then you also just really helped me saying, like, tool versus instruction, and instruction is learning the study skills. And so, we are he- we are in the profession to create independent students, and so mm-hmm. not just helping kids. So thank you. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. So for me, that that being able to identify that metacognition is is again, it's a game changer because it gives me direction. Otherwise, I was kind of struggling with like, what do I do here? And I think a lot of um, teachers would be in that same place, right? You have a student, like, tell me as an example, what would be a, a, a kind of struggle that you would experience with a student? And the student would be, uh, would struggle with processing academic text, either in video or in reading, or they would struggle to produce their ideas into writing. Okay, so ideas into writing, let's just go with that. So now they've got these ideas, putting it into writing. And then I would say, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I take my ideas and put them into writing? And then I would go and ask somebody else, how how do you do that? What's your process and what's your process? And maybe now we have three different approaches and we could even, if we know the student well enough, we might say, well, this approach probably would work better than that approach. Uh, or we could say to the student, here are three different approaches to get your ideas into writing. Which one do you think fits your need? And then, you know, let me teach it to you, right? And so that's where that step is applicable to all teachers. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. It's going through the process of, hey, here's what I do. Here's what other people do. You choose which one you like. Yes. Yeah. Then we move on to step uh, five, which is to adapt, is to kind of redesign or transform the lesson. And in this in this category, I'm often bringing in um, more visuals, more tactile, kinesthetic, kind of multi-sensory types of things, um, making sure that the directions are very explicit, 
um, you know, adding some scaffolding, all of that type of thing is happening here. This is where the real work is, right? You get the idea in step four, but then the work happens in step five in that adapting. Uh, step six is to stop and, and pay attention to any of the executive function skills that might be um, getting in the way, the lack of executive function skills that might be getting in the way. So often, you know, let's say we're talking about an academic thing like writing, right? And so we're focusing on the academics, the academics, how do we get them to understand this writing or this academic? But sometimes it's an executive function skill that's really getting in the way. Like if they have poor attention, maybe we need to work on addressing the attention in addition to the academics or we're never going to make much progress right. or perhaps they have uh, poor impulse control <laughs> and they're blurting out and they're shouting and they're right and how does that impact their ability to get to the academics so we want to take some time and think through those and i have a, a chart in the book and a chart that i use that's just a list of those different common executive functions and you know, we can quickly look it through and say, oh, this is gonna be a real problem in this lesson because you know, maybe we're gonna have kids out of their seats and moving around and some of their impulse control is gonna be an issue. We better do a little micro lesson on impulse control right uh, before the lesson or something. Um, so that step kind of broadens our thoughts. Again, I, I just, there are so many things that as a language specialist, I would never think about. I would never have thought about executive function for kids because that's not the lens in which we see our service, right? And so I'm just so, I'm awakened and enlightened from the conversation. Good. Well, you know, we all struggle in some fashion with executive function skills and, and general ed teachers often address those and teach them. But as kids age up, you get less of that instruction, right? So in kindergarten and first grade and second grade, of course, those teachers are teaching kids some of those skills, um, how to wait your turn, right? How to stand in line, how, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, but students with disabilities often have a greater need for more instruction on that. And then if they're not getting more, definitely as they age up through the grade levels, those issues become more problematic because teachers aren't addressing them anymore. Right. Uh, I bet you, I bet you, you and your listeners saw lots of executive function issues during the pandemic yes. with in learning online, right? It, it reared its ugly head hugely, you know, during this online instruction, if kids weren't used to that. Yes, it's really clear because they, hey, click this button. What button? Wait, where? Or like kids would, you could tell like, uh, can you please close your tabs that you're on? I could tell you're not listening. Yes. Or even just showing up on time, right? right? Um, coming late, uh, not showing up at all. <laughs> so right. there's some, there were there are issues there around teaching time management skills, right. Right. which is a huge part of executive function. Right. And, you know, there are developmental milestones, of course, we don't expect kindergartners to have the same kind of time management skills that we expect from eighth graders. But if the student in eighth grade doesn't have those, some of those skills and the teacher's expectation is you should be able to manage this. I'm not teaching you time management at this point. That's on you. Well, for a kid with a disability, the special ed teacher needs to step in then and make sure we are teaching that. 
I'd love to talk about that before uh, after we get to step seven. But I want to say, where does the teacher, the special teacher, actually perform a uh, support this instruction? So. Oh, great question. So that can happen anywhere that the student is. So specially designed instruction can happen in a special ed location, uh, you know, a special ed resource room, uh, self-contained room. Although because I am a huge proponent of inclusive practices, I don't encourage that, but I know that there are some students that might still need that. Um, it can definitely happen in the general ed setting and should be if the student is in there and the special ed teacher is in there, it should be happening in there. And it can also happen in community-based settings. So as we have some students that go out onto job sites or some community-based instruction in high school, let's say, SDI, specially designed instruction would be happening in those places too. What, what happened? So during class, like let's say that you're working with a general educator, when would that happen? Would that happen during the mini lesson or would that happen during conferencing with kids? Because not everybody needs that same skill. Right. So the important piece is to start with the planning, right? So my gen ed colleague and I would sit and talk about the lesson and I would maybe have an idea or two and then they help decide does would everybody benefit from that or just a handful and then based on that decision it could happen anywhere during the lesson it definitely is going to be most likely to be happening in small group instruction so when we move out of whole group into two or three or four groups going on in the classroom whatever that might be and a special educator takes a group that might be a mixed readiness group we might have some kids who don't have ieps along with some of their peers with ieps or it could be just the kids that are really struggling with it. And then the SDI would happen there. But I find that I provide SDI sometimes in the opener of a lesson because that's where I'm, um, you know, activating prior knowledge, getting kids attention ready. Uh, I might say, hey, we're gonna have a lesson today that's gonna require a lot of abbreviation. So I'm gonna take a moment and we're going to talk about how do you abbreviate? How do you create your own abbreviations? And then I might give them a word like, let's take the word Democrat. Um, how might you abbreviate that? Turn and talk with your peers. And, you know, they generate two or three ideas. Now, what about the word Republican? And they generate two or three ideas. And we put them all on the board. And then I say, now let's look at patterns to how people abbreviate. Oh, look, we take the first syllable often. We practically always have the first letter, right? Now that becomes specially designed instruction. If I have a student who has an IEP goal kind of related to that, like study skills goals, or um, because I'm instructing them on how to abbreviate, I'm not just giving them an abbreviation. And I could do that in, you know, a three to five minute warm up in a lesson. It wouldn't take much longer than that. So this micro lesson and everybody else is receiving incidental benefit if the teacher, my colleague, you know, feels like that would be valuable. Right. So it's really, again, about co-planning, at least yeah. to co-teaching. And then we can think about, is it better for the whole class? Is it better for a small group? Is it better at the beginning, middle, or end? And this yeah. is where the equity comes in. Yes. Yeah. Now, if I'm pulling students into a separate space, which I I personally don't do anymore, but lots of special ed teachers are providing SDI in that separate space, then of course it can happen at any point in the lesson. Very rarely does it fill a lesson block. 
it would be pretty impossible to be doing adaptations of content methodology or delivery, that's the legal definition, especially design instruction for an entire 45 minute period because I'm doing other things. I'm helping the kid take his seat. <laughs> I'm, you know, passing out papers. They're getting organized. I'm not doing SDI for the entire time, but it can take place anywhere that the student is. Right. Just like where we are as well. Wherever the kid yeah. is, we meet them there. Yes. Right. Can we talk about the last step, step seven? Sure. So step seven is to build in whatever might boost participation rates. Um, and because I always say, Hey, you can have the best lesson in the world, but if students aren't participating in it, it doesn't much help. Right. Um, so we want to make sure that we're doing something to build that participation in, uh, the number one way in my mind to boost participation is small group instruction. Yes. It's not the only way though, but it is the number one way I think. So that's where we consider, okay, now we've got this great idea for how we're going to adapt. And we, yes, we're going to work on some executive function or maybe no, we're not, but now we need to make sure we've got everybody participating, but particularly the students who really need this, those IEP goals that we're addressing, we need to make sure that student is really involved. And so we look at small group instruction. We look at, um, authenticity, you know, is it something that they're going to be interested in because it's authentic and meaningful to them? Um, we look at that, that readiness level, is it on a good instructional level? So they're going to be motivated and not bored or, or frustrated with it. Um, we look at, is it fun <laughs> emotionally? Is it going to be interesting and fun to them? Right. That's how we tap into students' motivations to participate. Um, and that can be through movement. It can be through gamification, all kinds of things. Right. So all of that is just kind of a catch all for let's just make sure they're going to be participating. Right. And that's how they start learning or that's how they continue to learn because when they participate, they engage. Right. right. So the seven steps are one. So the first three are the information stage, information gathering. So it's learning objectives, uh, identifying difficult moments, thinking about the IEP. And then the rest of the steps, four, five, and six, is the metacognitive processing needs, uh, adapting the lesson, thinking about the executive functions, and then boosting participation. Right. I got it right, right? Yes, you did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would be a remiss. We have a few minutes left. Um, you have two more chapters in the in your book. It's a one is about assessment and one is about leadership. Would you talk about those two briefly before I uh, ask my last question, which is, what are your recommendations for uh, students who are duly identified, who are uh, who are special identif identified, who are special ed, but also who are uh, language learners or multilinguals? But that's your last question. That's <laughs> my last question. I'll ask the first right. question first. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so once we've got our plan in place, we have to implement, right? So one of the chapters is about implementation and assessment. And uh, again, in the United States, when we're talking about students with IEPs, we have a very specific requirement to do what's called progress monitoring. And this is um, going to apply to any student that has an IEP where we have to collect data on an ongoing basis to monitor their progress. And then we have to report that 
progress on their IEP goals at the same time as report cards are provided to students. So however often you're providing report cards, we have to provide that data. And so we wanna make sure that we're collecting that data as we go along. Also because we wanna uh, tweak our approaches or change them up if the data is showing whatever we are putting in place isn't working. So it is really a formative assessment process. And to do that, you can collect data in all kinds of ways, right? It could be interval data, frequency data, looking at students' um, uh, work in the classroom and doing work analysis and, you know, any way that you do it. But it's really meant to help us decide to continue going down the path we're on or to change our direction because it's not working. The hard part about collecting all that data, of course, is just the time involved. And so we can have paraeducators involved in collecting some of that data for us. We can definitely have the general ed teacher involved in collecting some of that data. And frankly, even students, uh, as long as we have some way of kind of check, checks and balances, we can have students involved in, in collecting some data, um, not the only ones, of course. But when we have anybody other than the special ed teacher collect the data, we have to make sure that we're supervising that, monitoring that, and that we're doing some of it. They can't do it all for us. The special ed teacher is kind of the, the last person on the list in terms of like, okay, the buck stops here. You're responsible for this progress monitoring data. And and, and then we report that and change our procedures based on whatever the data is showing. So it's really not all that different than what good teachers do already. There's just this legal requirement associated with it. But what is different is the leadership piece yes. and where we go with that. And there's so many things that school leaders can do to support the provision of specially designed instruction. Um, number one, become informed about what it is. <laughs> I don't think that most principals have had training in what is specially designed instruction. Um, and yet they're doing the walkthroughs and the evaluations and they're providing whatever supports to their school staff. And if they don't know what it is, then they can't help with that. So that's the first step is to just get a really clear sense. Often principals, just like others, confuse accommodations uh, or you know, good teaching, they confuse that with specially designed instruction. Yeah, so they can walk into a classroom, see a teacher busy and, and actively involved with kids. That doesn't mean that they're doing specially designed instruction. So that's really the first step that a principal needs to have that. Um, then I encourage, uh, if we're looking at it from a school-wide perspective, I encourage the team, uh, leadership team, to think about doing a perspective map and a perspective map is, is just like any kind of web or mapping process that you think of, a graphic organizer, where we identify all the different players, all the stakeholders, and try to think of what are their perspectives as it relates to specially designed instruction. So what is the general ed perspective? Um, you know, is it that they don't have, the, they might be worried they don't have the knowledge, they might be worried about, is this my responsibility, you know, do I, am I going to lose some control in my classroom, right? like, what are their perspectives on it, what are the paras perspectives about that, like, wait a minute, I didn't go into teach, you know, I'm not a teacher, or whatever it might be, but just going through and really trying to identify all the perspectives, including, like, an EL specialist, you know, what is their perspective on SDI, what are going to be some of their thoughts, or worries, or concerns, 
And by identifying those, then we can start to provide the resources necessary um, to accomplish those. Right, because from our perspective, we teach from our perspective. And so it's really helpful for us to, to map. I, know, I never thought about that. So again, oh, Anna, this is another reason why you're such uh, a resource and a valuable uh, support for the community. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, perspective mapping is not something that I own as in designing it, although I don't know that people have applied that concept of perspective mapping to specially designed instruction. And so that might be a new step for districts to consider doing uh, as they're trying to move more and more down that pathway. Um, once we've got that knowledge in place and we've considered people's perspectives, I think there are probably maybe two more big things that I'd want to mention about leadership. And one is uh, setting the expectations, right. um, being clear that this is what we expect. We don't want our special ed teachers to be treated as less than experts. We don't want them to just be doing accommodations. We know you have more to offer. We're going to expect that. We're going to expect that from everybody in the school, that they're going to provide the opportunities in the general ed classroom, the flexibility and so forth. And then um, lastly is to provide some networking resources for special ed teachers. So often, and I bet this is very true for you too. So often you're kind of isolated. You might be the only one in a building or you might be working in two buildings yes. and you don't have those colleagues to brainstorm with. And there's a lot of creativity that's involved in this um, in trying to figure out how am I going to adapt that lesson? What should I do here? So when we can network with each other across districts, you know, building leadership often has that bigger image of who's where in the district versus a teacher would, who might I connect you with? And then what are the resources that are available throughout the school and the district uh, in terms of strategies and ideas and books and journals and, you know, all of that PD, all of that combined. And if the principal can't support that, that network, what teachers can do is they can create their own network and they can go on Twitter or social media yeah. somewhere on Facebook and then find the community of uh, language specialists. Of, in our case, it would be working with uh, spe special ed teachers. So yes, yeah. online. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Let's end this podcast by talking about what are your recommendations for students who are duly identified? Well, I, I would go back to, can we advocate for planning time, co-planning time? And by that, I mean, not just the general ed and the special ed teacher, but the general ed, the EL and the special ed teacher, right? Because there are the three of you there that are involved with that. And so it's important that you are all on the same page and you have the chance to talk. Now, some of that is just perhaps co-planning through uh, some kind of online shared document right? A Google lesson plan form that all three of you have access to so that you can, if you're not there, you don't have as much face-to-face -face time, but you can take a peek at it, see what's going on, drop your ideas in, the other people can drop their ideas into it so that you have a starting spot that makes whatever few minutes you might find together more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, this goes back to school leadership. Are they committed to that concept in such a way that they'll help to set up the schedules mm -hmm so that you can co-plan or maybe find some funding sources to give you stipends for, you know, once a month, uh, a, a picnic planning day, you know, where you, you sit down together or whatever it might be, right? Making sure that resource is there. Right. Um, that's the most important part, I think, is that communication piece. Right. It's people coming together with their own expertise saying, how can we uh, merge all these expertise to serve kids? Right, absolutely. 
Well, I last time I asked you about the th three lights, which is red light, yellow light, and green light, I'll ask a different question because I usually reserve this for the people who have been in the field for such a long time, such as you. You've been serving it for three decades now. That's what you said, right? Four. Four. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yes, this is probably yeah. deserving of an expert like you. Yes, I am definitely that old. No, <laughs> trust me, people are seeing this video and you do not look old at all. You're a triathlete. Athlete. I'm so yeah, nervous. <laughs> I can barely walk around my block. <laughs> um, what would you tell yourself with all this knowledge that you have? What would you tell yourself if you can go back to that first year of teaching? What would you tell Anne Bettinghoff, who's working with uh, special ed students in the beginning? Um, you know, my first year of teaching was a, a real anomaly because I was in a situation that had um, a very problematic leadership because of alcoholism. And like, it was a really unusual situation. And I almost felt, I really came very close to just quitting entirely because it was so negative. You know, I came out of college so excited. Um, so in reflecting on that and really any first year experience, I would say we want our specialists to advocate, to be confident and assertive, to be able to have those courageous conversations and speak up and say, I need help, or um, can you watch this and give me ideas? Can you connect me with others? We need to feel like we can ask for what, what we feel like we need, right? And so it's that, I know it's hard to be confident when you don't have much experience, but I'm not saying you have to be confident about your experience. You have to be confident about speaking up and saying help, um, advocating and uh, whatever that might be, being courageous. It may be, cor courageous is maybe a better word than confident uh, because people will think confidence has to do with the skill level. And I know new teachers, you know, they do have good skills. They're coming out of college with the latest research and all that, but the confidence isn't there yet that's okay, then set that aside, but be courageous in your conversations. Right, and that's really hard to do when you're so young and starting yeah. off, or those who are starting, entering the career mid-career, like uh, changing from another career, so. Yes, courageous. you know, so we, we know now from the research too, though, that that authenticity of just saying, you know, being vulnerable and saying, hey, I need help here, that that vulnerability, that authenticity um, actually develops trust and bonding and teamwork. And, and so that's, that's a good thing. We've always seen it as a weakness, but now we know that the research says it's less, it, it's not bad, it's a strength. And so perhaps more and more that will um, trickle down into education so that people feel comfortable being vulnerable and courageous. Right. Just lean into it like Brene, uh, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Yeah. <laughs> I love her. Um, thank you again for just being a gift and to the community, though we are, we serve, though you're in a different field than us, we serve the same kids and we stand under the same banner, which is equity, inclusion, yes. and, and a rigorous academic experience for kids. So thank you for shedding light and sharing the expertise from your field with us. My pleasure. Anything that I can do to help improve the lives, the learning experience of kids, all kids, that, that's what I'm all about. So it was a pleasure to chat with you about it. Well, when the next time you, I know you have courses online, I know you have several books coming, uh, you're out. So this is how teachers can learn about your amazing work. And so there you also have free resources on your website. You have like uh, 
downloadables that I, yeah. I, I looked at them and they're really great. So yeah, ideasforeducators.com. So if you have another book in the future, please, please know that this is always here for you. You know, every time I write one, uh, I say, okay, that's the last one because it's so much work. And I think I've done I, this last one, uh, the new one that's just coming out is that's my 13th. So I think that's my lucky number. So I, I'm going to say this is my last one, but you never know. <laughs> okay. I need to do better research. because I thought you only had like four. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, I've been writing for 25 years, so they're not even in print anymore. Some of the older ones, right? Pre-Amazon. <laughs> With all this knowledge, we need to have you back printing again. <laughs> Thanks. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Each time I have Anne Bettinghoff on the podcast, I learn so much. This time, the main thing I learned is about the need to not only accommodate instruction, but to specifically design instruction for students. It's a gentle reminder for language specialists that it's effective to accommodate instruction for multilinguals, but it is also essential to design lessons that meet students' linguistic needs. I know that we often talk about how we are underutilized as specialists. When we plan with specifically designed instruction for academic language, we rise to the level of expertise. Though Anne is not a language specialist, she and her special education colleagues have much to teach us. Many of us are teaching in the co-teaching model. For those who do, we owe a debt of gratitude to our special education colleagues who paved the way for this model for us. In the next episode, we start a new series. This series is on Silas Education. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.